So what's your story? You ever heard that question posed to you? I'm sure you have. People usually say that as a means to just kind of getting to know somebody. It's just a common thing. Hey, what's your story, right? But that's a pretty uh, flexible expression because sometimes you can hear that almost like a passive-aggressive put-down. What's your story, right? Or on the other hand, it, it can actually be kind of an, a romantic flirt. So, what's your story, right? I mean, that's how I met my wife. Um, and there's a dozen ways we can ask that question, what's your story? And every single one of them has in common what we're really getting at is we're trying to find out how someone, what, what makes them tick, right? What, what is the world in which this person is located? What are the things that they aspire to? What are their hopes and dreams? What makes them go? It recognizes that we are a part of a bigger context, that our lives include much more than just us, but that we're part of something else. What's your story? Right? That's why I love reading biographies, because you're literally reading somebody's story. That's why I love hearing uh, people share their testimonies, because you're hearing their story. You know, if you're a Christian and you're part of this church, you want to get to know someone really well, uh, just ask them their story, ask them their testimony. Uh, you, you do that and you're, gonna, you're guaranteed going to have a wonderful conversation and you're going to get to know things about that person that you never knew before. Now, if you're not a Christian uh, and you, you want to know what makes your Christian friend tick, ask them what's their story, what's their testimony. Why do they keep bugging you about coming to church? Why do they keep asking you to read your Bible? You'll learn a whole host of other things. Ask them, what's your testimony? Now, I know... Um, most people use the word testimony only in TV courtroom dramas, but Christians know what that word means. So what's your story? What makes you tick? What makes you go? Today, we are hearing about someone's story in particular, Paul's story. Now, if you weren't here last week, Greg talked about the story, the grand story of reality. If you weren't here, I really want to encourage you to download that, listen to it on the, from our website, because he talked about the story of reality. Today, we're going to talk about Paul's story and learn a little bit about Paul because, as you may recall from two weeks ago, his story was being challenged. His story, so interwoven with the gospel message, was being challenged by the false teachers who crept into these churches in the Galatian area. And more importantly, as we read of Paul from these 25 verses and hear about his story, what we learn is really not about Paul after all. And the story is a story about God's grace. And so as we look at these 25 verses, we're going to learn three things about the story of amazing grace. Number one, how amazing grace has been revealed and is repeated in your life. Number two, how amazing grace changes you. And then number three, how amazing grace glorifies God. Now with that, let me pray. Ask God to bless the teaching of His Word, and we'll jump right in. Father, we thank You for just an hour or so out of our week to take a break and to remember that the reality we live in is a God-infused reality. We don't live in a world that reminds us of that. If anything, we live in a world that denies that fundamental fact. So, Lord, thank you for the local church where we can gather and be reminded of what reality is all about. Father, we thank you we can hear each other's story, but more importantly, we can hear your story, the story of amazing grace. Lord, would you give us ears to hear what your Spirit has to say to us today, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look at 
how amazing grace is revealed and repeated in your life. We're going to look at verses 10 through 12. Paul talks about this in verse 16. He hints at it at verse 18. Now, the background you recall to this whole chapter is that the false teachers were saying to, that Paul, in fact, did not bring the entire gospel story, that the rescue plan that Paul brought was deficient. That Paul, in fact, did not bring the full gospel. It was a watered-down version because Paul wanted to make the gospel palatable to these Galatians. He wanted to do everything he could to bring the barriers down. Keep in mind, up to this point, Christianity was tied into Jewish ethnicity. And the gospel was transcending those barriers. And as it went out to other people groups, they said, Paul is making it easy for you. He doesn't want to bring along the Jewish law particularly the, the national markers of circumcision and dietary laws. Now, as a male, I can understand why you'd want to get rid of circumcision when you're presenting something, but that had nothing to do with the gospel. And so they said Paul's rescue plan is not, in fact, God's rescue plan. And so Paul is sharing his story, and in sharing his story, he's defending the gospel. And the two points he drives with is that the gospel is supernatural in its origin. We understand the gospel supernaturally. It's not something that we created, but yet even though it's supernatural, its application happens in ordinary life all the time. Now, as I taught you a couple weeks ago, if you really want to know the stories of the Bibles, the background of the letters of the New Testament, it's not necessarily embedded in the letter. You actually have to go to the book of Acts because the book of Acts is the history of all these epistles. And so we saw that, that the book of Acts chapter 13 and 14 recorded how the churches in Galatia got started. Now, if you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26, because in those three chapters, Paul reveals how the gospel message of God's free grace to humanity was revealed to him, and it was supernatural. Look at verse 12. Let me back it up. Verse 11, Paul writes, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What he's saying is, we didn't make this up. We did not make this message up. The gospel is not something that men created. Verse 12, for I did not receive it. Remember, whenever you have like a pronoun, you got to ask, what's it referring to? What's the it in verse 12? It's referring to the gospel in verse 11. I did not receive it, the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it, the gospel, but I received it, the gospel, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me make a point here that's that sometimes it's, it's so subtle in the passage. The gospel and Jesus Christ are identical, okay? So when he's saying, I didn't receive this from any man, these guys are saying, I didn't actually bring the gospel to you because it's so mind-blowing that God would say freely, I forgive you, and I want you as one of my sons or daughters, the, the, the false teacher saying, that's not how it works. You've got to do all these other things. You've got to jump through all these hoops. God doesn't just bring people in that easy. And Paul's saying, that's exactly how he does it. It is a free gift of grace. I didn't get this from any man. It was a revelation. And that revelation was Jesus Christ himself. Now that phrase, revelation of Jesus Christ, we can read that a couple of ways, can't we? 
We, the problem is we know English way too well. So we, our minds read things and we just blow right past them. Revelation of Jesus Christ. We could read that as it's a revelation uh, of, 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 it's Jesus Christ's revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, right? It's his revelation. The second way you read that is that it's a revelation of Jesus. The content of the revelation is Jesus, right? So one could be, it's Jesus' revelation. The other is, the revelation is Jesus himself. Paul is saying, I didn't receive this gospel from anybody. I received it as a revelation. The content of that revelation was Jesus himself. What Paul is saying is that Jesus and the gospel are synonymous. They're one and the same. It's not Jesus and you do all these other things. It's not Jesus and you get circumcised and you eat certain foods and do certain things on certain days. That's not what it is. It is Jesus himself and his work on our behalf. Folks, this is really important. Here's why. The major religions of the world obviously are are really closely connected to their founding teachers, right? That's obvious. But that's not entirely true of Christianity, right? People people don't realize this uh, very often. Now, I'm not saying that you cannot separate the teachings of Jesus from Jesus himself. What I'm saying is that they're actually synonymous. They are one and the same, and that's not true of every religion. Let me me unpack that. So, uh, Buddhism. Buddhism. uh, So, Siddhartha, the man who discovered the teachings of enlightenment, which led to nirvana, Siddhartha happened to be the individual that created and founded what we call Buddhism, but it didn't have to be Siddhartha. Right? Siddhartha discovered these teachings of nirvana. Could have been my friend Clint Kaneshiro, right? It could have been. Now, uh, Islam, it, it happened to be the case that, 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 that the prophet Muhammad received the teachings that understood from Allah, but it didn't have to be Muhammad. It could have been Frank, right? Uh, Mormonism. It happened to be the case that the, the angel Moroni revealed these things to Joseph Smith, but it could have been Tom Cruise just as easily, right? So, so when you have this conversation with people, they, they, you know, depending upon their religious co- commitment, they go, no, 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 that's not how it was. It was, it was Joseph Smith. No, 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 it was, it was Mohammed. I said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. I'm not arguing the historical, the historicity of your faith. I'm not arguing that. I know that in history it was Joseph Smith or Siddhartha. That's not my argument. My point simply is, it didn't have to be Siddhartha. It could have been Clint Connor It didn't have to be Mohammed. It could have been Frank. It didn't have to be Joseph Smith. It could have been Tom Cruise. And the religious system would have remained intact and continued to flourish as it is. Does that make sense? The, the founder is not essentially linked to the system. Does that make sense? It could have been anyone else that received these teachings and promoted that religious value. That is not the case with Christianity. You get rid of Jesus, you don't have anything. You don't have anything. You get rid of Jesus Christ, and you do not have Christianity. You can remove Siddhartha, you can remove Muhammad, you can remove Joseph Smith, and you'll still have those religious systems. You get rid of Jesus, we have nothing. Paul says that the gospel is Jesus Christ. That's why he keeps referring to it in verse 12. Furthermore, Paul says, I I didn't get this from man. I didn't lose this in translation, right? That could have been the case. They could have been saying, Paul didn't understand the gospel. You know, he was, he had this radical conversion experience and he just didn't quite get it. Verse 17, he says, look at verse 17, look in the text. 
He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those apostles before me. In fact, Paul tells us that it was three years after he got converted. Acts chapter 9 records his conversion. Three years before he even went to meet any of the disciples. And they were so afraid of him, Acts chapter 9 verse 26 and following tells us, that none of them wanted to meet. Only Peter and James, the Lord's brother, met with them. Because they knew this man's reputation. And they're like, we are not meeting this fanatic. So Paul says, I didn't even get this from them. This was directly given to me from the Lord himself. It was supernatural in its origin, in its revelation to Paul. But the gospel also has such ordinary application to our lives. Now, you might be thinking if you're here two weeks ago, wait, didn't we just kind of cover this material two weeks ago? Yes, we did, actually. We, we did cover this material. But that's because this book, Galatians, both in content and structure, shows us that the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ underpins every element and every aspect of the Christian's life. Paul, throughout this whole book, will keep coming back to it, and so should we, in our prayers, in our, our thinking about it, in the way we live, in our witnessing, in our evangelizing, in our teaching. You see, to Paul, the gospel... It's is, is not just some union card that gets you into what we call being a Christian, right? And a lot of Christians think that. Oh, the gospel, yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I got that stuff. I want to go into the deep things of God. I want to study revelations or prophecy. I got the gospel. No, you don't understand. Paul is saying the gospel this, this, that Almighty God out of His free grace gave His Son for unworthy sinners so that we might be restored to Him is the engine of everything it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Because the gospel, as we talked about last week, is the view of reality. I love that expression that Greg taught us last week, that the gospel merely is a picture of reality. So if the gospel is your picture of reality, it ought to shape the way you use your time, the way you use your money. If the gospel is a picture of reality, it ought to influence every aspect of your life, your relationships, your career, your retirement, your vacation, your parenting, every aspect of our lives. The gospel, we can go so far to say, Paul says it, ought to impact the way you actually drink orange juice. <laughs> it does. I didn't say that. Paul does. Write down 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Paul says it. Whether you eat or drink orange juice or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. What's Paul getting at? He's saying, look, the gospel is a picture of reality that transforms and changes every aspect of our life, even down to the most mundane things like how we eat and how we drink. Somebody asked John Piper, can you really drink orange juice to the glory of God? And, and John Piper, if you know John Piper, said yes, and went on for 30 minutes how you could drink orange juice to God's glory. I'm not going to do that. The point is, well, I was tempted to do it. I'm not going to do it. The point simply is, the picture of reality of the gospel, if it is reality, it has to shape everything we do. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. That the, the Bible, the, the Word of God, the Gospel becomes the lens by which you see the world. See, when you were a kid, maybe, um, you might have been told, uh, there's this acronym, the Bible, right? B-I-B-L-E. Uh, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? We were told those kinds of cute things to help us realize that. And so a lot of people go around life thinking that the Bible is kind of like a good dictionary or encyclopedia to figure life out. So if you're a... Um, Think about if you're anxious, you go in the back and your concordance, all the verses on anxiety, oh, okay. If you're angry, you go look at all the verses on anger and you go, oh, okay. Uh, if you're struggling with OCD, you go, oh, there's nothing here, so obviously God has nothing to say about OCD. But the Bible says everything about obsessive-compulsive disorder. It says everything about OCD. It just doesn't use those words. I mean, what is... OCD, uh, other than fear and trying to find salvation in a world that has no God in it. And so you continually are obsessed by something and you compulsively do something to protect yourself. That's fear and salvation. The Bible says everything about that. You see, the Bible is not an encyclopedia that we look at and says, how do I live my life? As much as it is, John Calvin said, it is a pair of spectacles that we put on and then we see all of reality through it now. See, the gospel doesn't just change the way you look at the world. It does do that, but that is because it first changed the world inside of you. And amazing grace changes you. That's our next point. Look at verse 13 in Galatians 1. So, so Paul is addressing these guys, these, these false teachers, saying, Paul, he distorted the gospel. It's not that easy. You've got to go through all these kind of hoops. And Paul says, are you out of your mind why would I make up things about the gospel when I was the one that hated the gospel more than anyone else? Why would I even bother to talk about the gospel since I hated it so much? Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, the Jewish law. But when he who had set me apart before I was even born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see, Paul's life is simultaneously the proof and the power of the gospel message. In other words, Paul, one of the reasons we can believe the gospel is that the foremost uh, apostle of the message of the gospel to the non-Jewish world was a Pharisee who had nothing to do with the non-Jewish world and did not want anything to do with it. Not only did Paul reject the gospel message, he was a champion for the Jewish law. So Paul is saying, look, if anybody would have valued the Jewish law and wanted these new converts to subject their lives to it, guess what? It would have been me because I was a champion for the law. This is exactly his point. So Paul is saying, why would I promote any gospel at all when I was dedicated to the very Jewish law that these false teachers say you need to obey now? You see, before Paul became a believer... Acts chapter 9, read about it there. He had done terrible things in his life to the church. Acts chapter 7, verse 53, into the early part of Acts chapter 8, records Paul authorizing the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. 
He was responsible to ensure the safety of all the men's possessions as they got rocks and hurled them at Stephen until he died. And Paul said, good. And as if ravaging the church in Jerusalem wasn't enough, he asked for letters to extend his jurisdiction as far as Damascus, 135 miles to the north, to arrest and imprison the Christians there in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. When Paul began his serious rampage against the church in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 records for us the Christians fled. But as they fled, they went preaching the gospel. But Saul was not happy that he was purging the Jerusalem city of these Christians. He wanted to go further. So imagine from Laguna Hills to Santa Barbara, that's the distance of the jurisdiction that he secured, that if he could find any Christians, he could imprison them, torture them, and execute them entirely. He hated the church, and he hated the gospel, and he hated Christians. And so he says, when God met him, Acts chapter 9, and when he recognized that the gospel message being restored to God was not a matter of your better morality or your religious involvement or any of those things, that God, because of his free grace, would forgive us because of what he did in his son on the cross, his mind was totally blown away. And so when these false teachers were saying, hey, you need to do this, this, and that, and then God loves you, Paul almost went ballistic. He's saying, in effect, I've done that already. I have tried to please God by my morality. I've tried to please God by my ethics. I've pleased God by my culture, and it doesn't work. That's not how this goes. The debt is far too high. No amount of righteous living, Paul said, would have satisfied God's perfect standard and if anyone would have known, it would have been Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, killing the opposition to the Jewish law. And he realized, I've been doing the exact opposite thing. God's grace radically changed Paul. See, a lot of people have a misunderstanding about what it is we're proclaiming when we proclaim the gospel. And maybe some of you are still under a misunderstanding. Christianity is not bad people becoming good people. That's just moralism, right? You know that. The message of the cross is that dead people can become alive again. That's the gospel. It's not bad people doing good things. It's dead people becoming alive again. And when Paul understood that, he was radically changed. And when he saw these people saying that that's not how it works, you've got to earn God's favor. He says, look, I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. That's not how this goes. And he fought against them that the gospel is freely a gift from God to us. And notice Paul says, verse 15, 16, but when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace. God calls His people long before His people call Him, right? Paul says, look, God knew this. This was His plan. Before I was even born, He had planned this. And it wasn't just Paul, Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet said the same thing in the Old Testament. Chapter 1, verse 5, it's on the screens behind me. Jer uh, Lord says to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. It wasn't just Jeremiah, it wasn't just Paul. Isaiah the prophet as well. 
Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar away. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. So it wasn't just Paul, it wasn't just Jeremiah, it wasn't just Isaiah. Guess what? It's the same for all those whom God calls. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And look at chapter 1, verse 4, right underneath that. Even as he chose, we got to work on those fonts a little bit better, don't we? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless. God has been choosing his people before they were even born because God is working out his plan and there's no clearer evidence of that plan than in Paul himself. God's salvation extended to someone who was willfully destroying God's people and yet he was invited in as well. My friends, nobody is so good that they don't need the gospel of grace. And nobody is so bad that they cannot receive the gospel of grace. That's why I love the gospel. That's why we love the gospel. Because its application is to everyone, moral, immoral, religious, irreligious. It doesn't matter because that's not how it works. It works on God's grace through Christ and His work. And what's even more amazing, get this, is that God used all that Paul was before he became a believer, not for Paul's benefit, but so that he'd be uniquely qualified to accomplish the plan God had for Paul. Did you pick that up? Paul was a Pharisee, which means he knew the Jewish law, he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. Paul was a Roman citizen, which meant he could go into the entire Roman Empire without any hindrance. And God called him to be the apostle to bring the gospel message to a world that did not know it at all. And this is a common theme in the Bible, isn't it? That that God would use what we think we're doing sometimes to thwart him, God turns it around and uses it as part of his plan. Genesis chapter 50, you know the story of Joseph, gets sold into slavery, gets sold into slavery, betrayed for doing a good job, and at the end of his life, when he's the second most powerful man in Egypt, and his brothers come before him again, fearful and terrified of what their brother's going to do to him, Joseph sees it in an eternal perspective and said, guess what? I know you meant it for evil when you betrayed me and sold me into slavery, but God meant it for good that many people would be saved, right? We see this in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, when the the disciples are just blown away that Jesus has been resurrected and they drag them before the courts and the disciples said, you crucified the Lord's Messiah, his Savior, because you thought you would get rid of him and you had no idea you were playing into his hand and through that crucifixion, God would secure the redemption of humanity. In the end, my friends, All opposition to God will be seen as having done nothing but confirm and further His purposes. You know, the um, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he talks about when he was a young man in boarding school in England, he had a professor, uh, they called him the Great Knock, his name was Kirkpatrick. He was a furious debater and a logician and, and, and knew how to make arguments and build a case, and he was an atheist. And he took young C.S. Lewis under his wing and developed him and taught him and confirmed him in his own unbelief against God. The great Knox 
taught Lewis how to make an argument, how to use logic, and how to reason so strongly and well. But years later, when Lewis became a Christian, the great Knock had only succeeded in training one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith of the 20th century. God will always use our opposition for His greater purposes. So, let's wrap this up. God's grace changes us sovereignly because God does the whole work, and God's amazing grace changes us entirely because we recognize that it's all that He does the work, and it changes us coming into, to, to, coming into the realization of that kind of grace and love. And finally, the last point we see in verse 10, which is actually the very first verse of our passage, where Paul says, am I seeking now the approval of man or of God? And the implied answer is what? No. And this leads us to our third and last point, how amazing grace glorifies God. The story of grace in someone's life like Paul is amazing in part because it takes from, away from us a man-pleasing spirit and it replaces it with a God-pleasing desire, right? Paul was not concerned about pleasing men, not these false teachers, not even these Galatians. He was only concerned to bring God glory, and he knows you bring God glory when you're more concerned about what he th thinks, what he feels, what he's concerned about, and not what men and women are. This is pretty significant because I think this is a theme, certainly that the Galatians struggled with, and I think everyone in this room, including myself, struggles with. It's called the fear of man. Yeah. Now, we don't use the word fear in its older sense that the Bible does. The Bible uses the word fear to mean a deep reverential respect and awe of someone, and it's an acknowledgement of their power. So that's what they mean when it says, fear God. It's not, oh man, God's in the room kind of a thing. It's, wow, this person, this being has so much power and majesty, and you recognize that, and it brings from you a reverence and awe. That's the fear of God. But you know, we can do that with people too, right? We can fear people, and it can look so different. It can be from physical fear, what is, what's this person going to do to me, to social fear. What are these people going to think about me? right? And it can not just be a fear that way, but can it take the form of approval seeking? I, I, I want you to approve of me, so I'm going to wear the kind of clothes that you think it's okay, I'm going to listen to the kind of music you think is okay, and I'm going to do what you think is okay because I want your approval. Or I'm so afraid of losing your approval that I will conform to whatever, whatever my social norms are, good, bad, or otherwise, so I'm not out of the club. That's fear of man. Whenever men and women are bigger, and God is smaller in our minds, that's the fear of man, and it never ends up well, right? And that's one of the things that the gospel does. It changes us. We no longer are fearful of what other people think or seeking their approval because we know at the end of the day, the question that, that in whose eyes I matter isn't you, isn't me. In whose eyes do you matter? The answer is always God. That's the eyes that matter. That's the eyes that need to be, I need to be concerned about. Any others is a snare. Proverbs uh, chapter 29, 25 says this, the fear of man is a snare, isn't it? The fear of man is a snare. That's why in South Orange County, people will buy things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't even know or like. Because they want to fit in. They want to be approved of. They want to be part of the culture. 
That's a snare. Remember in our study of 1 Samuel, Saul lost the entire kingdom because of the fear of man. 1 Samuel 15, 24. Remember he's talking to Samuel. He says to him, I've sinned for I have transgressed the, transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Well, Paul chose no longer to live for man's approval but for God's. And as a result, he vigorously fought for a gospel of grace. Verse 23. And as a result, it led to people glorifying God, and that's always going to happen. When you do not live your life for man's approval, but for God's, the natural result is always that God gets glorified. Well, we, we need to land it right now, but just the last thing is that, right, look, grace is amazing because in it, it is revealed supernaturally to us in the gospel. This amazing grace is amazing because it changes us through the gospel, and grace is amazing because it glorifies God because of the gospel. And that's what we're talking all about in the book of Galatians. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for a man like Paul who did not fear or seek the approval of men. But he understood that it was only before your eyes that he matters. Lord, I pray that be true of us. Lord, I pray that we would not be concerned about what the world thinks of us, but only concerned about what you think. Father, because we know your thoughts to us are good and gracious and are more than the sands of the sea. Lord, we thank you that like your thoughts, the gospel to us is just the message of hope and gratitude and love. Although we pray that as Paul was a vigorous defender for grace, we would also be likewise. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH dot org.